0: There's a story of a farmer who was prayerfully considering pastoral ministry. And he was out working on the farm one day, and he looked up into the sky. And the clouds formed what he what, what he saw to be a P and a C. And he interpreted this as a sign. This meant that he was to preach Christ. And so he entered into the ministry, and after a year of awful sermons, he concluded, PC stood for plant corn. (laughs) The moral of the story being that often we sometimes see certain things or experience certain things and we interpret them to be, this is the divine will for my life. And we would be sadly mistaken. In fact, as we're going to see in our passage in Leviticus, God gave many prohibitions against this kind of thinking. This was the thing that the pagans did a lot of. Regularly interpreting signs and omens and doing divination and consulting the dead. But God said for his people, no. You have no business involving yourself in those kinds of activities. And and this is a challenge for us as creatures of dust. We want to know the future. We don't like uncertainty. We come across certain decisions in life and we want to know what is the outcome after I make this decision before we make the decision. But the problem is is that God has veiled the future from our eyes and so we're supposed to trust. We're supposed to trust and ultimately use God's word as the guide and of course, the world around us uses things like horoscopes, fortune cookies, palm reading, tarot cards, Ouija boards, medium spiritists, and I think if we have some sense of what the Bible says, we realize, okay, shouldn't be involving myself in those kinds of things. But again, all too often in our kind of evangelical subculture, we have ways of putting out fleeces, ways of discerning what we think to be the will of God through interpreting certain providences, or does it, do I have a peace in my heart about this decision? And we need clarity from God's word on this important topic. We find ourselves in the midst of Leviticus chapter 19. So lots of laws in Leviticus chapter 19, lots of prohibitions. Uh, We've seen that there's some forty-two prohibitions in this chapter. And you could kind of neatly divide the chapter with 21 on one side and 21 on the other side. And in each side there is this refrain over and over. I am Yahweh. Or I am Yahweh your God. Or in some of your English translations, it will say, I am the Lord. Or I am the Lord your God. And it's a refrain that comes over and over as God is giving his instructions to his people. He's reminding them that he is their king. He is the one that they have entered into a marriage union with as his people. And he is the one who has graciously and kindly redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. And he was going to be bringing them into the promised land. They're not there yet. They're in the desert uh, and, and God is reminding them of his grace and kindness. Their, and this is to be a motivation for them to do what he says to do. And so we're going to summarize two of these prohibitions in the section we, we look at this morning. The first of these two prohibitions we're going to look at so that you would honor God in your relationship with him is stop seeking God's will and start submitting to God's will stop seeking God's will verse 26 begins with you shall not eat anything with blood now we may interpret that and take that to mean this is a reiteration of ...of the prohibitions of chapter 17. Remember chapter 17? That was a very bloody chapter. There's all kinds of commands against... uh, 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 ...related to sacrifice and the importance of blood. Where that famous quote that the author of Hebrews mentions... ...without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. But I don't think that's the prohibition that we find here. I mean, he did spend a whole chapter on that kind of stuff in chapter 17... I think what is meant here, given the context of all these other prohibitions that we see in this very context, that it was more related to an idolatrous practice that the pagans around them did that was related to the pooling of blood in the ground uh, and divining with with spirits. Uh, There was a this may have been something that was going on in 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you remember, Saul's son, Jonathan, had been sent out to war. In 1 Samuel fourteen thirty one says, They struck the Philistines that day from Michmash to Igelon, and the people were very weary, and the people rushed greedily upon the spoil, and they took the sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against Yahweh by eating with blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. So so in this situation that that we see in 1 Samuel 14, the people were were eating the food with blood in it. And and this was something that was prohibited. Probably even more near to our passage is Another passage found in Ezekiel 33:25 when it says therefore say to them thus says the Lord you eat meat with blood in it and lift up your eyes uh, lift up your eyes to idols as you shed blood you should then possess should you then possess the land I I think that's the idea here that this idea of shedding an animal's blood and it was engaged in some kind of idolatrous practice that, that, that was some kind of divining and communing with spirits. One commentator, Hartley, says In the worship of chthonic deities, the animal was sacrificed on the ground rather than on an altar or stone. The blood was drained into a deep trench, dug near the place of sacrifice. And allowed to soak in before the meat from the sacrificial animal was to be eaten. This blood rite was to draw the spirits to the surface and enhance the power of foretelling. And so that's why we see it in this list of prohibitions against trying to divine or ascertain the divine will. Next prohibition, it says, nor interpret omens or soothsaying. That's a tough word to pronounce, soothsaying. Soothsaying. Now, both of these practices had to do with discerning the future. Probably, again, similar to, to the, 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 the pulling of the blood of the animal. There was a practice in the ancient world called hydromancy. Uh, this practice probably is alluded to, you remember, in Genesis chapter 44 when Joseph, uh, he plants the cup of divination in Benjamin's bag. This was a, a practice uh, that uh, was practiced by the Mesopotamians and, and uh This is where a goblet, a cup was used to pour various liquids on water standing in the cup and its owner reads the configuration. So this is kind of like, you know, when you're uh, making coffee for yourself in the morning and you, you know, pour some creamer and clouds in my coffee. And then then you start divining based off of, oh, oh, wow, that... That looks like, you know, fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, this is God's will for me today. This business of soothsaying as well, and another form of this was called hepatoscopy. You think of the term hepatitis. It's the inflammation of the liver. So you can surmise from this that this had something to do with Reading livers, the most popular form of divination amongst the Mesopotamians, uh, one commentator says was hepatoscopy, the study of the liver of sacrificed animals or occasionally humans. One of the greatest kings of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, spent much of his life studying livers in order to divine the will of his God. Many of the ancient texts offer explanation for reading the liver of a sacrificial animal and they include special notations for, entering, uh, for encountering unique situations. The ancients saw hepatoscopy as being important, especially in times of war or famine. And there's an allusion to this, as, uh, again, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 21:21, where it says, "...for the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way." At the head of two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He asks the household idols. He looks at a liver. So, those are two forms of interpreting omens. Susang, hydromancy, patoscopic. We're expanding the vocabulary this morning, aren't we? Oh. One more in this vein, actually we saw in in Ezekiel 21.21 just a second ago, it's called rhabdomancy. This one requires a dictionary. This one is the divining of the will through the use of arrows, okay? So as as I mentioned, I'll read again, Ezekiel 21.21, for the king of Babylon stands in the parting of the way at the head of two ways. So it's in other words, which way to go? He shakes the arrow, asks for the household idols, and looks for the liver. The shaking of the arrow, this would maybe be like flipping of the arrow in the air and seeing which, which direction it lands, and then, okay, this is the divine will. This is the direction I'm supposed to go. Again, Hartley says that these conic- convictions, this, this kind of divining Uh, denies God is all-powerful. Therefore, participation in these kinds of practices undercuts the foundation of the revelation that Yahweh is the supreme God, the sovereign creator, and given the driving human thirst to know the future, however, practices of divination, which were common among the other nations, were hard to eliminate from Israel. So, God prohibits this. He prohibits the interpreting of omens, the soothsaying, the pooling of blood to try to, you know, amp up the the knowledge that, that one could have access to. But He also forbids consulting of the dead. In verse 31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am Yahweh, your God. So again, here this practice uh, of, uh, this is slightly different than the practice of of omens and soothsaying. But here you go to a person who is either a medium or a spiritist. Either they're a medium, they, they can communicate with the dead or they are a spiritist and the the idea of this is uh, one that inhabits them. The spirit of this person comes and inhabits them and they are able to communicate with them. And and the idea is communicate certain knowledge in the divine realm which other earthlings are not privy to. And all of these practices were forbidden by the Lord, so much to the extent when you go over to chapter twenty, or chapter twenty, just the following chapter in verses six through eight, it says, "As for the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person." I will cut him off from among his people. Therefore you shall set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. And you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who makes you holy. And then if you go down to the end of the chapter, verse 26 of chapter 20 of Leviticus, Thus you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy. I have separated you from the peoples to be mine. Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely die, shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so this was a very serious crime in ancient Israel, so much that it required the death penalty. And of course, we do not live in a a theocracy like ancient Israel did, where, where these things are capital crimes, but nonetheless, the principle still exists even in the context of the New Testament church, that God's people as New Testament saints are not to consult mediums or spiritists or to be involved in soothsaying or the interpretation of omens. God forbids it. In fact, you remember there's a couple different instances in the book of Acts. One is in Acts chapter 9. There was Simon the sorcerer, and part of his repentance was what? Turning away from his sorcery. We see similarly in Acts chapter 16, the, the, um, the woman, who, the servant girl who was being a, a nuisance to Paul, remember that one? Uh, in Acts 16, 16 says as they were going about, uh, we're going to the place of prayer, a servant girl having a spirit of divination met with us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, these men are slaves of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It's very interesting what she was saying was actually true, right? Verse 18, and she continued doing this for many days, but... But Paul, being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, leave her. And at that very moment, it left her. So so this divination that this woman was doing, very clearly, uh, according to the word of God, it, it was due to a demonic spirit that was inside of her that needed to be driven out of her. And so, again, you can see this is consistent with the scriptures that false gods and this kind of false religion, what lies behind it is demonic activity. Whether it's white witch or black witch, it's all black. It's all dark. It's all evil. It's all, and and it's no wonder because Satan himself masquerades as what? An angel of light. We see similarly in Revelation 21, eight. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so these... Occultic practices, which were around in ancient Israel and they're around today, are forbidden by God. So how was ancient Israel, how were the ancient Hebrews permitted to have a knowledge of the divine? Well, there's a couple ways in which God would communicate with his people. Uh, One was through the Urim and the Thummim. That's another tough one to pronounce. The Urim and the Thummim, this was evidently something that was on the high priest's breastplate. We don't know all the details, but it was some kind of casting of the lots to discern God's will in certain situations. There was certain times which God would communicate to the prophets through dreams and visions, we see that with Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams. We, we see that uh, with various prophets. And we also see that the prophets with the, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes God would communicate directly and he would give his divine will. And then, of course, we also see it with when the prophets would record their writings for us. Ultimately, in Torah or Pentateuch, we have the first five books of the Bible, and then we have the prophets. This was God's method whereby he would communicate to his people. And perhaps you remember a season in the Old Testament in which God was stopping communicating. Remember King Saul? The prophet Samuel had died. God had, was clearly sitting in judgment upon King Saul because of his disobedience and rebellion. And now the prophet Samuel had died. And so Saul, who evidently had previously driven out all the, the mediums, the witches in Israel... In a very clandestine way, he goes incognito and finds the witch of Endor. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, it says, The Lord did not answer him by dreams, or Urim, or prophets. And so Saul sought out a witch to conjure up Samuel. It was forbidden. It was forbidden. In the same way that it is forbidden today. And yet we live in a world that... These numbers are somewhat dated, but the paranormal is very seductive in our culture today. Numbers from roughly 20 years ago say that 60% of people believe... That some people possess psychic powers. An estimated 1.4 billion a year and this was 20 years ago was spent on psychic hotlines. Remember those? If you're watching TV past like 10 o'clock at night, it seemed like every other commercial was for some psychic hotline. And again, those numbers are dated, but almost certainly with the, with the Internet and all that's available today, these things still perpetuate. But then again, I would suggest that in our evangelical subculture, we sometimes do similar things to try to discern God's sovereign will. And I think it's very important to understand that when we're, you're reading the Scripture that, that, that you have God's sovereign will, that which go, is going to happen, that which will happen, that which is, from, from our vantage point, happen, will happen in the future, will absolutely happen in the future, but we don't know it unless God has given us some prophecy related to it, like Jesus is coming back. We know that's going to happen, right? But, but, but that's usually not the information about the future we want, right? We want to know, who am I going to marry, you know? What kind of career am I going to have? And so you have God's sovereign will that will happen. Whatever has happened in the past was part of his sovereign will. Whatever happens in the future is his sovereign will. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. But then there's God's, uh, that's sometimes called His decretive will or His sovereign will. But then there's His, um, sometimes called His preceptive will. Precept just means command, so sometimes it's called His will of command. That's namely all the commands of Scripture. And when it comes to the decisions that we make in life... We are not to try to pursue the divine sovereign will, but instead to make our decisions based upon God's preceptive will. What has he told us to do? What has he commanded us to do? And if he hasn't commanded us, if there's no light from Scripture as far as what direction to go, then in the words of Augustine, love God and do whatever you want. (laughs) Because if you're loving God, you're going to be concerned about what God has said. Is there anything that Scripture says about this? And then you can do what you want. Well, and I think an important verse along these lines is Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. The secret things belong to the Lord that would include God's sovereign will from our vantage point. From from our vantage point in the future, the secret things belong to the Lord. You're not to try to pry into it. But the things that have been revealed, His will of command, His perceptive will, belong to us and to our children that we may observe all the words of this law. What God has revealed to us, we know what his will is. If we encounter a situation, should I lie or should I tell the truth? God's will is tell the truth. Or, how about this one? If you're looking for God's will for your life, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is the will of God for you. Give thanks in every circumstance. Stop grumbling. That's a good life verse. How about this one? First Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4.1 This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. Okay? Anytime we see a command, a prohibition something we're supposed to do something we're not supposed to do that's how we that, that is to be the guiding Directive for the decisions that we make. So, how would this look? Well, imagine you're a young person, I imagine you're saying, "Who should I marry?" And does God's word say anything about who you should marry? Yes. There's certain people you're not allowed to marry. You're not allowed to marry somebody else who's already married. You're not allowed to marry a close relative. You say, gross. Well, that was chapter 18, right? You're not allowed to marry... In the Bible, it's not even marriage, but in our culture, because it's called marriage, I guess it needs to be stated, you're not allowed to marry somebody who's of the same sex. You're also, according to the Bible, not allowed to marry somebody who's not a Christian. And so you can kind of go down the list and see, okay, this, is, this gives me a circle of persons if I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, according to God's will, it would be permissible, and so you may be, you know, a guy and looking at Jane and Jill, and say, "Well, I kind of like Jill better than Jane," and guess what? You can ask them to marry you. Now, maybe one or both of them says, "Get out of here, loser." But that's your guiding parameters, okay? You don't put out fleeces. You don't, you know, you're reading the Bible and say, you know, well, you know, I look at the way in which, you know, you know, some of the patriarchs were able to find a wife and, you know, it was the, you know, the person, you know, who waters their camels and, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put out a fleece here, okay? Which if you study the fleece in the Bible, that's from the book of Judges, right? when God told Gideon that he was going to have victory over the Midianites, and he basically said, God, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. And so he put out a fleece. Is that really the kind of example you want? He wasn't, and by the way, Gideon wasn't trying to discern God's will. God had already spoken. He said, you're going to win against the Midianites. The problem was that Gideon didn't believe him. The the example of the putting the fleece out isn't even an example of trying to know what God's will is. It's trying to have certainty what God already had said. Or sometimes we use things like, "Well, I just I just don't have a peace about it." Now. We may not have a peace about a certain decision because it's sinful. And hopefully you don't have peace about sinful decisions. And that may be an indication it's against your conscience. And so you shouldn't do it. But that kind of subjective inner tranquility is hardly a good guide for making decisions. Because sometimes we can be making sinful decisions and I'm okay with it. And, and again, friends, this is important because sometimes the way in which as Christians we try to discern the divine will through these different tricks and games, it, it makes God out to be like he's playing games with us. He's like playing hide and go seek, and you know, or he's 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 speaking in riddles, or. Uh, you know he, he he's playing hard to get, but but that's not the God of the Bible. He he's not he's not trying to trick us. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy chapter thirty and verse eleven and twelve, I love this. It says, "For this commandment, Moses says, which I am commanding you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it far from you. It is not in heaven that you should say." Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us that, to make us hear it that we may do it? You don't have to climb Mount Everest to get to God's will. He came down. He's spoken to us. Verse 13. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may do it? You don't have to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. God has come to you. He's spoken to us in His Word. The question is do we believe it? Do we believe it? There was a time during the time of Isaiah the prophet where many were consulting mediums and spiritists to seek the divine will. And in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19 it says now when they say to you inquire of mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter should not a people inquire of their god should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living and then I love this Isaiah responds to the law and to the testimony If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. Isaiah's response when people are are going to mediums and spiritists, he mocks them and says, you consult the dead on behalf of the living. Instead, you consult the word of God to the law and to the testimony. So very practically, if you want to know God's perceptive will, God's will of command, you need to learn what the Bible says. Learn what the Bible says. Very verse you may have memorized from the time you first became a Christian, Second Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for how many good works? Every good work. And so that means if it's a good work, if it's something that's a matter of righteousness, it will be given to you in the word of God. And if it's not, if God doesn't speak to it directly either by some precept, by some direct command or some principle from Scripture, then there's a freedom to do whatever you want. So learn what the Bible says. Be a student of the Scripture. Secondly, learn what the Bible means. Some people may know what it says, but not know what it means. I mean... You're not really going to read Genesis 6 and see God's command to build an enormous boat and go out to Home Depot and get all the lumber you can and start building a boat in your backyard. So, so you can know what it says, right? But, but you actually have to know what it means, that, that that was a command that was specific for Noah at a specific time and and so then you need to be able to bridge that gap then to what it means today and so we need to be good students where we know what it means second Timothy 2:15 says that we are to be workmen in regard to the scripture he says that you are to present yourself unto God As a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who accurately handles the word of truth. We want to be good students of the scripture, which sometimes takes work, right? I mean, there's all these words here, right? All these sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books. But yet, Jesus calls us to be disciples, right? Which actually means students. We're to be his students. No, I'm not suggesting that it's just a mere of cognition. But, I mean, that's the starting place to understand what God says. To understand what God means. And then, thirdly, to learn how to apply the Bible properly. I mean... You can see, I mean, obviously we're going through Leviticus here, right? And so we need to understand, Leviticus was given in a specific time. It was given during a time of a theocracy where God was the king in Israel. So there's certain civil laws that may not directly apply today in a one-for-one kind of way. In other words, you... You probably harvested all your garden. You didn't leave the edges of your garden for the poor to come and take, right? You, you, you didn't, you, you know, you took all the gleanings and, and I don't think you were disobeying or dishonoring God if you did that because that was a, a civil law that was given for a specific time. But there is a principle there of generosity to those in need and, and things like that. So it, it, we need to 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 learn to apply the Bible in a proper way So that we can honor God. Well, I'm sure a lot more can be said on the topic. But ultimately, the basics are that God's word has to be our guide in discerning God's will for our lives. And if he hasn't spoken directly to it, then it's probably an area of freedom. You may want to seek counsel. Somebody who knows the Bible better than you may... uh, Have you thought about this verse? Because that directly applies. So, stop seeking God's will. It's right here. (laughs) Okay? You don't have to swim across the ocean to get it. It's right here. And start submitting to it. But secondly... Stop appeasing the false deity and start accepting the true God. Notice verse 27. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads nor harm the edges of your beard. So here, God was concerned about hairstyles. Or was he merely concerned about hairstyles? Well, these kinds of hairstyles were, as you might expect, peculiar to the pagans that surrounded Israel. Jeremiah chapter 48 verse 37 says, For every head is bald and every beard is cut short. There are gashes on the hands and sackcloth on the loins. So evidently that these kinds of haircuts were, were part of mourning rituals related to appeasing the deities. Deuteronomy 14:1 and 2 says, You are sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not gash yourself or shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So again, this these kinds of uh, shaving the sides of your head and not harming the edges of your beard. If you you know if you see certain Hasidic and Orthodox Jews today, you'll see uh, they. They literally try to abide by these principles. Well, I think that the difficulty is that, that it's not really the, these, the relevancy of this prohibition doesn't exist anymore today <clears throat> because that's not the practices of pagans around us. But there are other practices that we should be abstaining from. There's certain religious rituals that Christians ought not to involve themselves with false religions. Certainly this is a view of God that's that's trying to appease a false deity. Verse 28. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am Yahweh. Now, some of you parents with teenagers have been waiting to get to this verse. (laughs) I told you you shouldn't get any tattoos. But wait a second. Hold the phone. Play's under review. (laughs) Again, this is in the context of these pagan rituals in which there's this gashing or cutting of your own body. One commentator mentions in Ugaritic myth of Baal, when the chief god, God El, learns that Baal is dead, he goes into paroxysms of grief that emphasized the magnitude of the cat- catastrophe. He pours dirt of mourning on his head. Dust of humiliation on his cranium for clothing. He is covered with a girdled, girded garment. With a stone he scratches incisions on his skin. With a razor he cuts, uh, cuts cheeks and chin. He harrows his upper arms. Plows his chest like a garden. Harrows his back like a garden in a valley. And so there's this gashing here that's taking place. And does this remind you of a certain passage in the Old Testament? Certainly one of my favorite. Mount Carmel. It's the showdown, right? Between Yahweh and the Baal. And you remember the the contest. There had been three years without rain. Three years of famine. This was part of God's judgment because in his law he said, if you rebel against me, I'm going to shut up the heavens. And God did for three and a half years. And Elijah the prophet told Ahab that was going to happen, and it happened. And so now after some three and a half years, there's this contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and, and uh, you remember the prophets of Baal, the, the contest is to see who can make God bring rain. And of course, Baal, being the fertility god or the god of harvest, this was, this was right in his wheelhouse. You know, this is a fastball right down the middle. But the prophets of Baal, they're crying out to Baal. And you remember Elijah, he's there. Maybe he's on the pot. (laughs) Maybe he's busy doing business. And he's just mocking them. And then they start cutting themselves, right? Gashing themselves. I mean, they've gone to extreme lengths to try to appease Baal so that he would hear their cries. And, and this was, again, this was a practice in which there was something in the blood. One commentator says that, that, that the markings, that, that I'm sorry, the, the, the shedding of one's own blood was to offer blood to departed spirits or, or to the deity. And then you remember Elijah, you know, he, he guys, you know, Bring out the water pots and just start pouring it on. And then he cries out to Yahweh and Yahweh answers. He brings fire, lightning down from heaven that just consumes the, 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 the uh, uh, sacrifice on the altar and then rain comes. The point is, is that this gashing... Was to appease the deity, as well as, by the way, the tattoo marks. These were these were engravings that uh, these were bodily markings that served as a sign of belonging to a certain cult, and so the, this was a way to show devotion to the deity. So sorry, parents. <laughs> now there may be other legitimate reasons why your child should not get ink on their body, but probably not going to be based off of this verse. Again, this is why we need to be good students of Scripture. But again, if this was showing devotion to some cult, then certainly this would be a passage that would directly apply. If there are certain even markings on the body that were supposed to be communications with the dead, you know, maybe that is. In some context and it would be directly applicable but certainly this is a way of viewing the deity as a deity who's to be appeased a deity who you are to sacrifice for a deity even if you have to harm yourself you must harm yourself for his benefit God says no Followers of Yahweh ought not have anything to do with that. Because the God of Scripture is a God who does not call for self harm to get his attention. Again, he is not a God who is playing hide and go seek, and you need to really work hard to get his attention. No wonder of wonders, this God was bored of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. That God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son. And that as God came to this earth and enfleshed Himself, It's Christmas, right? You knew I'd get Christmas in here somehow. He came to us. He came to us, not to call us to self-harm, but for himself to be a sacrifice for us. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friend, this is the gospel, the pagan gods call for you to harm yourself, to enter into their good graces. And this is the story of every religion in the world. You have to do, 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 sacrifice, but we serve a God who has sacrificed himself on our behalf so that we can be accepted before him. Friend, is this the God that you're trusting in? Is he your hope this morning? Or are you on the treadmill of good works trying to get the attention of the deity, trying to get the attention of God, hoping that he'll, he'll send you some goodies for Christmas? No, no, my friend. He's not like... Santa Claus with a list to see if you're naughty or nice. No, he is the God of the Bible who has given his own son to die upon the cross for us wretches. And he calls you to trust wholly in him and what he's done on the cross. Trust in him today. Let's pray.